I'm Frank Rossi. From TurfNet Radio, this is Frankly Speaking. My guest today, Ted Horton, the 2008 USGA Green Section Award recipient, former superintendent at Wingfoot, Westchester Country Club, the vice president of resource management at the Pebble Beach Club, and as I said before, one of my favorites, the board of directors of Audubon International, and currently the senior consulting superintendent for Brightview, a corporate golf management company that I believe is the merger of Brickman and Valleycrest that then became Brightview. Ted, welcome to Frankly Speaking. Thanks a lot, Frank. This is really kind of fun because I remember... Probably when we first met a million years ago, when you were working for Bruno Vidalia, I believe your uncle at Metropolis. Is that correct? Uh, no, but you got me mixed up with Al Turgeon, which I'm perfectly happy to be mixed up <laughs> with a guy like Al anytime. I was working for uh, Paul Caswell up at Greenwich Country Club. Oh, Greenwich Country Club. Right, okay. right, right when you were at Westchester. And the great story that you might not remember. I went to a Metropolitan Golf Course Superintendents meeting when Al was speaking there. Chuck Martineau was the president of the Met Association at the time. And I was a junior in college, and mm. I have had a tendency in my life to grow my hair a little bit longer than the average person in our, in our industry does here in the States. And Chuck Martineau mistook me for Rachel, your former uh, architect at Westchester Country Club. So at my very first Met meeting, I was mistaken for a woman, which uh, has... Yeah, so so anyway, we're going to find ourselves reminiscing a lot, Ted, because our... I have been a big fan uh, of your career for a very long time and a very proud recipient this year of the award that you and I now share, which is uh, the President's Award for Environmental Stewardship. So I could sit here for an hour reading all your achievements and I could embarrass you like people do with me many times. I've, I've still not gotten very good at accepting the recognition, but I'll just start out with a couple of simple questions. How does a Canadian... (laughs) from Montreal, wind up at the UMass program, and then ultimately as an assistant in training at Wingfoot in 1966. I uh, attended McGill University in in agricultural biology, and while I was uh, going to school there, that's in the ag school in uh, St. Anne de Bellevue, I was working summers on a new golf course called Summerlee, that was designed by an architect, and he said, Ted, you really seem to be enjoying this. If you really enjoy this work, you should consider, after you finish McGill, taking another couple of years at University of Massachusetts and taking up the profession. Okay. And I consider him one of my mentors at the time and, and probably all my beginnings to him. And Jeff just uh, passed away recently, I understand. Yes, yes. What a gentleman he was. Well, we'll be, I always liked Jeff. Jeff came and worked at Greenwich Country Club uh, when I was the assistant there back in the 80s. I got to meet him and a finer gentleman uh, you'll not meet. And I'd probably say the same thing about you. And so with with your gentlemanly stature, you were charged with preparing Wingfoot for the 1974 U.S. Open, which apparently went down in history known as the Massacre at Wingfoot. And for the young people listening to the podcast, the winning score was seven over par and the average round of 76.99. So here's my first question. What did you do that up until that time had never been done before 
that made it so difficult for the golfers at that time? Frank, remember, no tournament is successful without really a, a sequence of weather events that kind of set you up and set you up well. So we had a great fall the year before for preparations. We had a great spring setting up into the tournament. At that time, both the PGA Tour and the USGA Championships tournament specs called for six inches of rough in uh, cool season grasses. And in order to achieve six inches of rough, traditionally the way we accomplished that was you'd go out with blitzers, you'd mow the roughs at three inches, and then you'd gamble and say, it's time to stop mowing. It's going to grow into the six-inch rough that's on the tournament specs. Unfortunately, what happened is you ended up growing into 10 inches in some place, and some places didn't grow. 1972, Toro came out with the upfront rotary deck, the 72-inch rotary. And I said, boy, the way to do that, we're going to get four of those rotaries. We're going to put six-inch wheels on them, set up the deck at six inches in height. We're going to mow our rough all the growing season in the fall before and all the growing season in the spring prior to the June tournament. With that, we're going to be able to adjust any areas that haven't grown appropriately. We're going to fertilize them, water them, uh, baby them, and the areas that have grown, we're going to try and groom them. And, and like that. So we ended up with a tangle of rough mowed at six inches in height for the first time that any of the tours had seen that. And unfortunately, or fortunately, from the golf course superintendent's perspective, the golfers got out there and couldn't even find their feet, let alone their golf balls. So you mentioned blitzers. Now, I know from reading prior to this that you mean real mowers that you used to pull behind. They were ground-driven real mowers that you would pull behind a tractor. And when the turf was that high, the turbulence from the reel would push them down. So what you were able to do with the rotary at the time was to stand them up. So previous to that, they were playing in rough that was might have been six inches long, but was probably matted down. Yes, but you had no way to cut it because you, you couldn't set the, uh, the, the real mowers higher than three inches. Uh, so you weren't mowing for the last two, three weeks prior to the tournament. So you had a proliferation of growth that was very, very uneven everywhere. Yeah. And it was always a gamble. Maybe you got away with it, and maybe you didn't. Right. The other way of going after it was to hook up a great big PTO woods rotary or something like that in the back of a tractor and mow rough that way. So the equipment was just not there at the time. And so we that was the beginning of, of rotary mowing of roughs. So obviously they were having a hard time hitting it straight. How fast were your greens in 74? That, that was long before the stimp meter, and we did everything we possibly could. At that time, we were mowing with the old Jacobson 22-inch mower. You couldn't get a close-cut bed knife, so we saved our bed knives for years before, shaved all those bed knives down to paper thin, changed our bed knives every single night. We mowed the evening before and twice the day of the tournament, and then we set up some other old greens mowers with a smooth rollers and put some concrete blocks on top. So now we were rolling greens and mowing them a lot, and we had set the cut of height down to about, I called it 964th at that time. It was probably closer to an eighth of an inch. At that time, there was no other way to cut greens at an eighth of an inch. Uh, the, the bed knives couldn't be set that low. The mowers couldn't be set that low without going through the nonsense that we went through to set them up. So they, when the pros hit that golf course, they really had not experienced that type of green. Again, understanding the perfect weather that set us up. I can never take credit for it all succeeding had not the weather kind of been right with us. Okay, so let's fast forward. Let me put you, uh, 
I have not done as many tournaments as you have based on your count here. I have had a front row seat to a bunch in the last couple of decades, including U.S. Opens and tour events. And what I notice is, especially since uh, Shinnecock in 2004, the players now are much more vocal in the setup and conditioning and what they view as fairness uh, of a golf course. So can you take me through a little bit what it was like during the week while they were not scoring and used to score? I mean, obviously they were used to scoring fairly well, but what was it like during the week when they were struggling so mightily? I mean, we did have television back then, Ted. I think it was color television, even in the 70s. We're going to date ourselves for all these uh, 20-year-olds listening to this thing. So tell me what it was like uh, interacting with the USGA and the players while the conditioning was like this. Did they tell you to back off and, and soften things up, or were they all perfectly happy to have that test of golf? Were they all perfectly happy to have a test of golf? No. The players really felt that they were being tested too severely. At that time, uh, Sandy Tatum was the uh, USGA tournament chairman, and that's when he came out with the famous phrase, we're not trying to embarrass them, we're just trying to identify the best players in the world. I had a great rapport with the USGA. Again, Wingfoot being a, a New York City golf course, USGA headquarters just around the corner in, in New Jersey. I knew P.J. Boltwright very well. He visited the course on a regular basis. He was executive director of the USGA. Al Radko was green section director. I knew Al extremely well. And so we were in constant communication with them. And we simply were able to meet the specs that they had provided to us, which had not ever been really fully met prior to that. Because they changed the specs, both the PGA Tour and the USGA changed the specs for roughs in the year ensuing. And very shortly thereafter, they came out with the stint meter and were able to kind of measure and come up with a speed of greens that they felt was satisfactory. They've also since then, they've come up with, and I don't remember the name of it, the hardness meter where they can actually tell you uh, the firmness. And they've come up with uh, some very sophisticated moisture level reading equipment that they'll test and look at every green during the setup. So the setup is far more sophisticated in its approach today than it was then or could have been then. So that's right. I mean, you're exactly right. And to be honest, you know, I was walking around, uh, I was on the setup crew at Aaron Hills this past year, and the number of people that are out there determining hole location and stint meter speeds and the people that are just involved in the setup and the, and the thought that goes into pin position and, and weather and wind and firmness is much more dialed in. And I feel like what that's done is that little bit of transparency, Ted, has opened up Pandora's box where now I feel like to some extent the players are almost have all the power here there's if if they can't score they make it almost like that somehow the tournament was a failure i couldn't imagine if i mean you saw what happened at chambers bay uh the outcry that came from that you know i almost wish for for back when you were there that we would go back to that in some ways that we were just left alone to sort of set it up fairly and you played the course that everybody else played and Everybody sort of shut up about it. And now with the sort of access to the public that the players have directly without through the media, uh, it's really changed the dynamic quite a bit. Can you give me your opinion or, or did you like it the way it was or do you think we're, we're heading in the right direction here? No, Frank, quite clearly, in my opinion, 
every major event has to have three great winners. Of course, the best player of the week needs to uh, be identified and should win, win the tournament. The golf course itself needs to be a winner. You can't shame it. You can't embarrass it. You can't embarrass the membership. Why would they hold a tournament? Why would they come back again? Why would they ever support golf if we're going to embarrass them? So they, they need to win. The charity that's involved needs to be a winner. So you need to have those three winners. When I was at Wingfoot at the time, and it's still true of Wingfoot, Wingfoot was one of the greatest golf clubs. Don't misunderstand me. There's a difference between a golf club and a country club. Wingfoot was pure golf. Swimming pool, paddle tennis courts were all shut down because you didn't want any noise bothering a golf tournament. It was that type of a golf course. They had one of the lowest per capita handicap in their membership. Golf was their thing. It was extremely important to them that their course stand up to the best players in the world. And I represented them. I felt very strongly that that I represent the Wingfoot members and we've got to look good to this. And all the way through this, we had a great rapport with the USJ. Every superintendent needs to work very hard on that relationship with the tournament staff so that they have a clear understanding for when things go right and when things go wrong, there can be adjustments. So day in and day out, we were talking. It's really fun. When it finished, Al Redfield sent me a copy of Dick Schaap's book, The Massacre at Wingfoot, to the big chief kid who made Sitting Bull look like Whistler's mother. Pro's Rest in Peace, June 16, 1974. I remember the tournament as being just a wonderful sort of pace-setting event where clearly K.R. Irwin, the winner, went on to win two more tournaments. He clearly deserved to win. That's right. And so, listen, Ted, before we go to our first break here, uh, let me ask you to contrast 74 with the 100th anniversary of the Open back in 2000. I think Mark Mashad was at the helm back then at Pebble Beach. Yeah. How would you contrast what you did in 74 with your role as, I mean, you weren't the golf superintendent, right? You were sort of in charge of all the properties as well as the infrastructure. We're going to get to that later on. What would you say is one big thing in a couple of minutes uh, was a big difference between the first time you did it and, and then doing it in 2000? Well, again, I was not the hands-on person, it was actually Eric Greytalk at that point. Mark had left and gone to uh, Shinnecock. So Eric Greytalk took us through the U.S. Open in 2000. The difference there is the golf courses. Wingfoot West Course is a big manly golf club that can stand up to virtually all types of weather and all types of golf events. Pillow Beach needs some weather to really, really make it shine. And so if if you don't get some, some winds and if you don't get the ocean kind of playing the effect, it's softened somewhat. So there's a lot more chance involved in the setup of Pebble Beach if you want to make it a very, very difficult course. Ted Horton joining me on Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi here on the TurfNet Radio Network, and we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear and traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. 
Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Frank Rossi here on the TurfNet Radio Network, joined by Edward C. Ted Horton. You could say we're having a TED Talk, huh, Ted? We <laughs> made our way through the early part of your career, and now I want to get into a part of your career that I actually had a little bit of a front seat to as well. I remember at Greenwich Country Club riding the old Turf Pro 84s uh, up and down the rolling hills of uh, Greenwich Country Club, the the first venture into what at the time was called lightweight fairway mowing. So let's get into your time at Westchester. So you left Wingfoot in what year? 1979. And right over to Westchester? Yep. Okay. So now you're at Westchester Country Club and... You are mowing fairways like everybody else in the metropolitan New York area and probably throughout much of the country uh, with pull-behind gang units, I'm assuming, at the time, like everybody else had, yes? Well, yeah, you had the large park masters, but in in essence, same same thing. They were ground-driven. They weren't hydraulic-driven, were they? They were not at the time. Right. So now you go along and all of a sudden start taking triplex mowers, greens mowers, and mowing your fairways with them. I guess we'll start out with where'd that idea come from? I had a, a great green chairman who played a lot of golf and was a pretty good golfer. And all my career, I've been very fortunate in that I've had people come back to me as a superintendent and say, hey, Ted, I got over to XYZ Club and you should see what they're doing. And whenever, whenever anyone said that to me, I made sure that I got on my horse and got over and checked it out. So um, Peter Bisconti came back from playing in a tournament uh, with me. Uh, he was green chair at the time, and he said, Ted, Tony Bassano over at Mountain Ridge in New Jersey is mowing a few fairways with a triplex mower, and those fairways look really great. So I went over there to see what he was doing, and he had modified a Toro Pro 84 and was doing that. So I came back and said, okay, we're going to price this out. So we did a sort of a return on investment sort of synopsis of, of this, determined that for the cost of four Pro 84s, we could mow fairways in the same amount of time as we were mowing them with a large seven-gang unit and probably save a lot of repair and less airification and everything like that. It costed out to really not cost all that much. So we switched over to that. And within a year, we saw bent and Poanya ferries just converting over to bent grass so quickly uh, that it was amazing. To do all of that, we, and this is where you probably ran into Jeff Cornish at Greenwich, we hired Jeff Cornish to come in and contour, outline the fairways. So we took 30 acres of fairway and reduced them to 23 acres so that we could accommodate the triplex mowers. And from then on, triplexing became the in thing. I remember Toro came up with a big display of the equipment that we had used at the next golf industry show. We got several articles in some of the publications, and and it became quite the thing. So let me ask you, though. You know, you went over and saw that superintendent that was doing it in New Jersey. I'm assuming they were doing it for playability as well, or maybe they were doing it because they had wet fairways and the park master was rutting up the fairway. Yeah. Either way... What I've seen sometimes is we are typically an industry fairly resistant to change, and yet you seem to be the kind of guy that, uh, you know, was always out ahead of the curve here. Did you, what kind of, I see, you know, I read your uh, T to Green article from 1985 where you actually 
costed this out, yes. you know, with the dew removal and reduced airification, reduced chemicals and all those things. Right. What kind of conversations were you having with uh, your superintendent colleagues? Was this something that they uh, welcomed or did they see it necessarily as a burden at the time? I don't remember meeting any resistance from fellow superintendents at all. I think they appreciated the fact that I could help them sell it by virtue of the fact that any Westchester Country Club at that time was pretty much in the public eye. And most golfers in, in the New York area got to Westchester at some point and, and everyone could see the results and everyone could go home and say, well, gee, superintendent, you know, you've been saying triplex mowing might help. And I think you're right. So I think it really helped us all make that change from a high profile club to every golf course in the area started to do it. Yeah, and, and it's very funny that I want to wrap up this little piece about mowing fairways with the comment that I had a student when I was on the faculty at the University of Wisconsin that was working for um, Bob Alonzi during the uh, 1995 or 96 PGA Championship that they held at, at Wingfoot. Yeah. It was on the heels the year after, I think, Paul Atshaw Sr. had the uh, open at Congressional where they started uh, hand mowing the fairways <laughs> with hand mowers. Uh, thankfully, we're back to five plexes and, and well-designed mowers. You certainly had an impact on the equipment industry, uh, challenging them to develop uh, lighter weight mowers that do the job. But I just ask you, uh, what did you think when you saw people hand mowing fairways? Well, I attended that tournament also, but you know, quite honestly, I don't think the hand mowers were really particularly productive. They were great for setting up lines and everything like that, but behind the scenes where people weren't watching, they were triplex mowing them and yeah. getting the grass cut. Yeah, the hand mowers for, for aesthetics, not for cutting the grass. Yeah, no, I really think so. And, you know, Frank, I think we always have to remember that mowing practices can always be improved. We've been mowing with reel-to-bed knife, I mean, since day one, and we've got to continue to look for better and better ways of doing it. Without the good mowing, the finest of all the other maintenance practices wouldn't mean a thing. That's exactly right. I have to say that, you know, I've done some mowing research in my career. A uh, number of scientists in the Midwest have played around with this as well. And even even some simple issues like uh, bed knife attitude and bed knife position. Yeah. Now that we're cutting so low and sanding so frequently, many of the setups that we took for granted on mowers in the past I have to be fine-tuned to make sure we're not picking up uh, all the sand that we're putting down. So I can tell you, and I firmly agree with your comment, that there's a lot of room to uh, improve mowing. But I want to transition now to the other thing that happened that I remember when you were at Westchester, and that was a, a relatively, at the time, historic dry period. Uh, a drought hit the metropolitan New York area, and they started to restrict water use in the area where you could only water on certain days. I, I believe they even might have said to you, and you can clarify this, you know, you can't water certain parts of the golf course. And I believe if I recall, and from reading on it, you served on a drought advisory committee that really spoke for uh, recreational uh, uses of water in the, in this particular case, golf courses. Can you Take us back to that time in the 80s and, and what it was like, because you live in California now where drought is almost the, the middle name out there. Yeah. Well, again, uh, you, anyone who's flown into New York City, you look out of any window on, on an airplane and all you see is water. And how can you possibly run out of water? But we sometimes forget that there's so many people in New York 
that very quickly the amount of potable water gets utilized. And so during that dry period, yes, there were very significant uh, restrictions placed on golf courses. Many of the courses at that time were using potable water from the local water districts. And Westchester was very, very significantly affected because we were such a big club and such a big user of water that they literally would come over and just shut us down. There's no understanding that, gosh, you shut me down on a on a day when it's 100 degrees and uh, we haven't had any significant rain for several days, I'm going to be, lose a lot of grass. So I went through a very dreadful sort of period where we lost some grass. And I went to our president at the time, a really a mover and shaker in the metropolitan area, and I, and I said, Mr. Ross, there's got to be something uh, we've got to do. And I said, I, uh, we'll do our part and our fair share of saving water, but we have to do it on a sort of a more sophisticated and a better understood fashion. And he said, you know what? My uh, administrative assistant is a very good friend with the county exec. Let me call him and let's see what we can do. So all of a sudden I was called and said, hey, Ted, would you like to serve on the Westchester County Drought Emergency Task Force? That county basically managed most of the water going into New York City and all of Westchester County. I found that I got on that task force and looking around, there were mayors from the local towns, there were presidents and vice presidents from large industry in the area, but nobody knew water the way a golf course superintendent knows water. So we impound water, we know how to manage a pond, we have pumps, we pump water, we have distribution systems, we have irrigation systems, we have sophisticated uh, ways of turning sprinkles on and off and all that sort of stuff. I found myself pretty much running the committee very quickly. And we came back and I gathered all of the green industry at the time and we did our first economic analysis of golf in the metropolitan area. And we came up with some very significant numbers, as, as we all well know, both the amounts of money that golf contributed, the amount of people that we employed, the taxes that we paid, the money that we paid to uh, our employees, the fact that we hired a number of needy people, et cetera. And we made a very, very strong pitch that we have to have a little more control on how water is handled. And it was really funny because most of those decisions at that time were being made by staff that advised the water company. And one of the key people on the staff was an avid racquetball player, and I loved to play racquetball. And literally, we, we would be playing racquetball together or an extra hour of water for golf. Now, I, I don't mean to say that, and I don't think the public officials would ever appreciate me saying that, but I got on that type of an intimate speaking terms with the people making the decisions of when water would be on or off for golf, and that makes a very big difference. And so it seems like, to me, the lesson here was, and I think you know, bringing it into modern times, getting a seat at a table where decisions are being made that the people who make those decisions are completely oblivious to the impacts that some of those decisions are. For example, I would imagine when they would just come and shut you down, they would say, well, you know, it's golf, it's recreation. We don't need this golf course. People need to, you know, take showers and, you know, flush their toilets and, and you know, cook pasta. And we don't have enough water for that. What do we need to do this golf course water for? So do you feel like... Before you did the economic analysis, when you first showed up at that table, and because I think a lot of superintendents are facing this now in a variety of areas, you know, pesticide use, nutrient use, and of course, in many parts of the country and the world, uh, water use. Do you feel like uh, just from, you know, 40, 50 years of looking at this, 
that we're a little bit better when we show up at that table. We, you know, we're a recognized uh, partner there. Or, or do you feel like golf still got a little ways to go to get a seat at these tables where these decisions are made at the municipal level for things like water and nutrients and pesticides? I think the industry has recognized that we can make a very significant difference if we are at the table. I don't know that we're as united as we should be. Golf is a very fractioned sport, and we see that in particular as we've worked so hard to put our California Alliance of Golf together. We just cannot get everybody at the same table at the same time or to pay for things that need to be done. But uh, Craig Kessler out in California has worked with golf course superintendents and local agencies, especially in the Los Angeles area, to very clearly help them resolve their problems and make sure that there is adequate water for golf where possible. So by working together, I think he's made a very, very big difference for golf in this area. Ted Horton's joining me on Frankly Speaking here on the TurfNet Radio Network. We'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Frank Rossi here on the TurfNet Radio Network with my friend Edward C. Ted Horton, former golf superintendent at Wingfoot Golf Club, Westchester Country Club, vice president of resource management at Pebble Beach Club, on the board of directors of Audubon International, and currently the senior consulting superintendent for Brightview, a corporate golf uh, management operation throughout the United States. And Ted, let me go back to your days at uh, Pebble Beach. You obviously settled out in California, so you're very familiar with the water issue. But back, gosh, I'm going to have to go back to the dates here. It might have been in the early 90s when you were involved in a wastewater uh, treatment project, bringing wastewater, recycled water, down 17-mile drive uh, to the Monterey Peninsula and, you know, ultimately culminated in, in a focal point for golf. Uh, the USGA did a wonderful text on that, recycled water use for golf. It is a very, as we said earlier, water is a critical aspect of, of what we do in golf. Uh, reusing water does have a great possibility, uh, although what I've learned from chatting with Mike Huck, uh, one of our water guys out at West, that even sometimes recycled water uh, has its own issues of access and and use. So let's uh, go back to those days in the 90s. Was there a drought at that time that drove this need for recycled water out on the peninsula? What was the motivation behind getting this project going? Well, the Monterey Peninsula had gone through several significant cycles of drought and turned the water off on many of their golf courses and suffered appreciably in that fashion. Pebble Beach Company was still a bit of a development. They still had some property that they wished to build another golf course on, enlarge one of their resorts, and perhaps build 
some additional housing sites. So they still, in the back of their mind, wanted to be able to do that. And in order to do that, in the Monterey Peninsula, you had to have absolute ability to show that you had water. And with this Mediterranean climate, this tendency toward drought in that particular area, the eight golf courses in Pebble Beach itself were really struggling to have enough water, and Pebble Beach Company didn't have the water for the future development. So they put together a program, developed the funding resources to go back into Carmel and retrofit the wastewater treatment plant from secondary to tertiary treatment, and then put the delivery system in from Carmel up into Pebble Beach, and then retrofit each of the eight golf courses in Pebble Beach to handle recycled water. That was about a $37 million project, a big deal. When I arrived as the vice president at Pebble Beach, those plans were immediately slapped on my desk and said, here's your first project. So I was not really there during the whole planning process. So, of course, as I'm pouring through it, I'm seeing, holy cow, we have a 2 million gallon a day plant and no storage. So that means that there was enough water if you added 2 million gallons a day times 360 days. That equals the number of acre feet that the golf course has used in total, but it never took into consideration the fact that we, you know, we don't use it any water in the, in the winter rainy period, and we use excessive amounts during the hot kind of months of October, November, or early spring. So I went back to them and said, you know, guys, theoretically, this is going to work, and absolutely this is the right thing to do, but you've got to have a storage component so that we can manage our irrigation situation a little better. So a second portion of that program was to retrofit an old Cal American water storage reservoir, reline it, and store a bunch of water so that we could then balance our our water use on those eight courses. Now it's a very successful program. But again, with all of those greens on all eight of the courses, eight fine golf courses in Pebble Beach, all of them were poenia. And the additional sodium and salt in the recycled water immediately showed up problems. So we had to spend quite a bit of time researching how to combat uh, and grow poanya in a, in a more saline sort of water uh, situation. It was a fascinating project. It was absolutely the right thing to do. Those golf courses, some of the finest golf courses in our country, are now guaranteed water forever. So, you know, you do this in the early 90s, right? And I got to tell you, candidly, it seems like this isn't happening anywhere, anymore, anyhow. I. It seems like water is among the most urgent issues facing the golf industry. And yet the landmark work that you guys were involved in back then just doesn't seem to be happening to the same degree. And I'm wondering how much does the permitting and the fear of using recycled water, the regulatory obstacles to bringing these recycled water situations to golf courses. How much do you think the regulatory burden of making this happen? Now, you said you weren't involved in the planning, and that might have been where a lot of this happened. But do you have an opinion, you know, former, you know, executive director, one of the founders of the the golf course owners of California, you know, obviously these are people with skin in the game. Uh, You know, it's their livelihood. Has recycled water grown in popularity or has it basically just been either stagnant or just steady growth? Well, I believe that you can't even consider 
developing a golf course now in California without access to recycled water. So clearly it's understood that that's one of the few waters that are going to be available, that or ground storage of water. And that's kind of hard to come by in California because we just don't get enough rain, especially in Southern California, that, that we can store water. So that is the real problem. But I think the major issue with recycled water, Frank, is that they have improved the recycled water so significantly that it's getting reused everywhere now. So the competition for that water is very, very intense. Okay. For instance, my, my wife is a director on the local water company that supplies all the water in the area that we live in, and they don't have enough recycled water. Hmm. They just don't have enough. So that is a perfect transition as we wrap up our 45 minutes already, Ted. Really, time went by really quickly. But let me get you out of here on this. You know, you've been out in California. You've been through the recycled water. And a couple of years ago, California went through the kind of drought that starts to what we call almost sociological drought. It was affecting, for many people, a way of life out there to a certain extent. I'm wondering, as a person steeped in, long time steeped in California golf, I've had this conversation, and I'm sure you know Mike Huck out there in Southern California. I've had this conversation with him. There are golf courses adapting to it, but I'm wondering if you could look in a crystal ball. I mean, what do you think is the future for golf in a place where uh, water resources, recycled or uh, fresh water, are going to be uh, in fierce competition, not just with society, but, of course, with food production. California is such an important state for the United States for food production and the amount of, you know, 85, 90% of the broccoli in the country comes out of that place. 90% of the almonds come out of California. And those are, you know, big water using crops. What do you see as the future for golf uh, in California in and amongst these uh, water issues, Ted? Well, unfortunately, our university system has been somewhat devastated and we're not doing the amount of research we'd all love to see happen. But Jim Baird at UC Riverside has a a couple of Bermuda grasses that are showing up to be a little more drought tolerant, stay green a little bit longer, a little more cold hardy, et cetera. And, and I think with additional research, we're going to come up with some better grasses. Clearly, we're, we're all improving our irrigation systems. And uh, most of the courses in, in the area that I'm familiar with are retrofitting to target golf, where you're irrigating the areas that are truly in play, your, your green fairways and the roughs are becoming naturalized and less water is being used in those areas. So I think as we go forward, more and more of of that will happen. Yeah, I, I have to say I was quite a bit alarmed when the drought stuff first started coming to the forefront that the governor made money available to reduce turf areas. And I have to say, I wonder what it says about our industry when we all of a sudden started tearing out grass getting paid literally to tear out grass that previously was irrigated, that doesn't seem like something that was uh, the best foot forward. Uh, I think in one way it is, right? We're willing to make some sacrifices, but it almost seemed like we were so willing to do it that maybe we didn't, shouldn't have had that grass there to begin with. Does that make you hopeful or concerned for the future out there? Well, in conjunction with a, a good architect, to design and place the appropriate plantings in the appropriate places. I I don't think you go willy-nilly and tear out grass 
just for the sake of tearing it out. But when you do it with design and playability in mind, you can actually end up with a golf course that's, that's probably more challenging while it's using less water. Now, the thing that we've all misunderstood and probably need to really take stock of is that those drought-tolerant areas are probably more significantly difficult to maintain than just running a gang mower up and down or a rough unit up and down a bunch of grass. So there's a new management style that has to come into place to maintain these things. There's a better understanding of what plants we should have out there. And it really needs to be done in conjunction with a significant planning from an architect's perspective so that the playability is improved and not not hindered. Ted, it is a joy chatting with you. I could do it for another couple of hours, but we wouldn't have a podcast if I had to keep yakking for two to three hours. No one would want to listen to the sound of my voice that long, as though, although I'm sure your dulcet Canadian tones, which have definitely been Americanized over the years, let me thank you for uh, taking the time to be with me on Frankly Speaking. Uh, I, I wish you nothing but the best as you continue to enjoy California weather and, and your life out there with your wife and kids. Thanks a lot, Frank. Appreciate it. It's great having you here, Ted. Ted Horton, everybody, frankly speaking, on the TurfNet Radio Network. Once again, smart talk from leading thinkers and always frankly speaking. Mm-hmm.